0: This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today we'll talk about the deep history of the radical right's stealth plan for America. Nancy McLean tells that story in her book, Democracy in Chains. Trump Watch starts right now. But first... Fred Trump, the President's Father, and the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s. For that, we turn to Linda Gordon. She's an award-winning historian who teaches at NYU, and she's the author of many wonderful books, including Dorothea Lang A Life Beyond Limits, and my all-time favorite of hers, The Great Arizona Orphan Abduction. Her new book is The Second Coming of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s, and the American Political Tradition. We reached her today in New York City. Linda, welcome.
1: Hi, John. Glad to be here.
0: Well, the Klan of the 1920s, we're not talking about the Klan of the 1870s right after the Civil War, the terrorist Klan. The Klan of the 20s, where was it? How big was it? And how secret was it?
1: It was huge. They claimed 5 million members. It was all over the northern and western states, much stronger in the north than it had ever been in the south. It was mainly nonviolent, and that doesn't make it less dangerous, because precisely its, its claim to legitimacy worked to try to legitimate uh, bigotry.
0: And the Klan of the eighteen seventies was a secret underground organization. Were the five million members of the Klan of the nineteen twenties? Uh, was that were they part of a secret underground?
1: They were not secret at all. Uh, although I might point out that the, the terrorist Klan of the South claimed to be secret, but plenty of people knew exactly yes. who uh, who were members. Yes, but. The Klan in the North claimed to be entirely law-abiding, and for the most part, they were. There were there were uh, many vigilante actions, but the vast majority of members were completely nonviolent, uh, unless you consider their really hysterical, uh, bigoted harangues against. Catholics, Jews, people of color, unless you consider that a form of violence.
0: The targeting of Catholics and Jews, this is something new in the history of the Klan. I don't think the Klan of the 1870s really cared very much about Catholics and Jews.
1: You're absolutely right. The Southern Klan was focused exclusively on African Americans. The The 1920s Klan, in some ways, was a huge backlash against the large waves of immigration that had been coming into the U.S. since the 19 19- since the 1880s, what was really different about that immigration is that very few of those people were Protestants. There were Jews from Eastern Europe, Catholics from Southern Europe, uh, Orthodox, even Muslims for the Near East. And uh, the Klan was uh, an organization that stood for keeping America white, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, and native-born.
0: I I can't help but think of uh, the current uh, president who ran for office uh, on on an anti-immigrant platform. It's kind of an unmistakable connection.
1: It is, uh it is. I'm sure that anybody who read any part of this book would see the connection <laughs> yes. immediately. But when you when you look at the two together, the Trump and Trumpism against the Klan, one of the things you see is that bigotry can be uh, chameleon like and very opportunist. Uh the Klan uh tended to adjust its bigotry toward whatever group was uh Available, you might say, in different parts of the country. You know, for we're, example,
0: yeah, California. we we're we're, of course we are in Los Angeles, and and you say that the Klan in Southern California had a, a a different kind of attitude towards the Catholics than the Klan in other parts of the country.
1: Yes, they were uh, involved in attacking Mexican Americans, and in doing that, they sacrificed their cross-the-board anti-Catholicism and even allied with. Uh, other non-Mexican Catholics, Uh, but it was very strong uh, south of Los Angeles. Uh, For example, Anaheim was uh, considered one of their prizes, so much so that many people began to refer to it as (laughs) Klanaheim.
0: The police force of Anaheim, what was their relationship to the Klan?
1: Well, you know, Law officers in general were the largest single occupational group uh, among Klan membership. Aye, aye, aye. And Anaheim was not the only place where the police forces not only included many Klan members, but were really uh, more or less controlled by the Klan. Even, for example, the mayor of Madison, Wisconsin, said that his police force was more or less tied up by the Klan. And in in the cases in which the nineteen twenties Klan did violent vigilante actions, they did so with the absolutely open collusion, excuse me, of the police. Police often deputized Klan members. There were uh, raids against saloons. This was Prohibition era, remember. Raids against saloon in which uniformed cops went along with uniformed Klan people. Mm. So this is also something that has overtones for what we see today.
0: You say that police officers were the number one occupation of the Klan. I understand that uh, Protestant ministers were also prominently included among the ranks of Klan members.
1: Yeah, the Protestant ministers, uh, the Klan claimed 40,000. The Klan was always exaggerating, so that number seemed to me a little high, but it's very clear that thousands of evangelical Protestant ministers were praising the Klan in their sermons. And because of that, the ministers were a really important uh, recruiting uh, effort for the Klan. The Klan liked to carry out particular ostentatious actions in which they would march in uniform into an evangelical church during a Sunday service, present them with a small cash gift to the great acclaim of the ministers and the congregants often. Uh, in fact, the Klan could be said to have been part of, or even a, an instigator, of a certain kind of evangelical Christian revival. <laughs>
0: Uh, you say they, far from being an underground secret organization, they were open. They had millions of members, and they were uh, political. They participated in mainstream politics. How how successful were they?
1: They were extremely successful, and this is what shows that their uh, decision to go legit uh, paid off. They elected eleven governors and 45 congresspeople, oh. and I am talking now about people who openly campaigned as uh, Klansmen. And this doesn't mention are probably thousands of uh, town, county, state officials. But, you know, probably the most important political success of the Klan was the 1924 Federal Immigration Restriction Act, this is the first time that there was a uh, restriction of immigration into the United States. And that piece of legislation installed into law exactly the clans hierarchy of the races, or as they would call it, or the ethnic groups from uh, the Nordics, who were allegedly superior uh, down through the so- supposedly inferior Eastern and Southern Europeans. You know, it's worth noting uh, because I think a lot of people f- don't know this or forget this that that law, the 1924 immigration restriction law with its quotas, large quotas for the British and tiny quotas for Jews, that was that was the law of the land until 1965. This is a- Forty years.
0: Until 1965. It's part of the 60s that the Klan-inspired restrictions on immigration were finally repealed. We need to get to the big question of Fred Trump. I have read that Fred Trump was arrested at a Klan event in New York in 1927. What do we know about the father of our president and his relationship to the Klan in New York City?
1: You know, what's important about this is not whether Fred Trump was a member of the Klan, but that he shared their views. It's hard to know exactly who were members because we don't have very many membership lists, although we do have some. But, you know, the Klan's strength came from the fact that in addition to their allegedly 5 million members, they had millions more who shared that point of view and who wanted to participate in Klan marches and other public events of the Klan.
0: So what we know about Fred Trump is that there was a march of a 1,000 Klansmen in 1927 on Memorial Day in the Queens, New York neighborhood of Jamaica, and this turned into a brawl with the police. Several people wearing Klan regalia were arrested, and one of them was Fred Trump. Uh, And that's pretty much what we know. Fred Trump was listed in the papers, one of the people arrested, brawling with police at a Klan march in 1927. I wanted to ask you the the whole deal with Klan regalia. What was the deal with men dressing up in bedsheets and pointy hats?
1: First of all, they did it because the earlier Southern uh, clan had done it, and they wanted to express their continuity. Because uh, we have to keep in mind that even though the Second Klan focused a lot on Catholics and Jews, they were as racist about African Americans as the First Klan had been. But the white uniforms had several functions for them. First of all, they were a huge money maker the whole clan really, really was a for-profit corporation wow uh, and they not only charged a lot of money for initiation fees and dues but they got people to buy these these costumes which were incidentally very cleverly designed so that clan wives could not manufacture them themselves out of white sheets hmm. But they were also symbolic, because one of the Klan's, you know, sort of underlying themes was purity, the purity of white race, and the purity of evangelical Protestantism, and the purity of not drinking, and the purity of chaste women. Uh, This was all part of this very uh, racist ideology.
0: So we've talked here about men dressing up in Klan regalia. I know from your book there were women also in the Klan, lots of women. Why? Why Did they join to meet guys, or why?
1: Women were very enthusiastic about the Klan. There never were as many of them. There might have been 1.5, 1.5 million. Uh We don't know exactly for sure, but I think we have to get rid of any idea that there's something about being a woman that makes a person immune from racism or even makes them uh, question the hyper-masculinity and vigilantism of the Klan. These women, however, once they got started, I mean, the Klan welcomed the women at first because having just received the right to vote in 1920 by the Women's Suffrage amendment, the Klan saw these women as just more votes for their side. But what began to happen, and this happens a lot in movements of conservative women, if you read what they wrote or what they said, they articulated an extremely conservative gender ideology. Women belong in the home. Women are primarily mothers. Women have to look after their husbands, etc. But once they get involved in political activism, they not only find out that it's fun, but they began to challenge the male control over these uh, women's auxiliaries and hmm. did so in a number of ways. They resented having to pay, uh, send part of the dues that women paid up to the male heads of the clan. They did a number of things in defiance of what the... Imperial Wizard located in Atlanta wanted them to do. None of this, however, made them any less bigoted.
0: And I want to go back to the very beginning of the clan of the nineteen twenties. How did it get started? Was was there a single event which launched them?
1: There wasn't a single event, but there was a single uh, strategy. And this is really important and unprecedented. The first imperial wizard of the clan who wanted to develop it in the North, who saw, had the vision that there was a market for this in the North, he wasn't doing very well. And so he hired a PR firm. To the best of my knowledge, this may be the first time that a social movement hired a PR firm. (laughs) the two people who comprised that PR firm, they are the ones that first suggested going after immigrants, Catholics, and Jews. But they also hit on a recruitment by commission strategy, which essentially was a pyramid scheme. A recruiter for the Klan could keep 40 percent – of the initiation fee, which was $10, and that in today's value is well over $100. The Klan was not an organization of poor people. So the recruiter would keep that 40%. Then the new member could in turn become a recruiter and find other people to join and keep their 40%. But what happens with that kind of scheme is that eventually people – Run out of more people to recruit. <laughs> yes. And so the people at the bottom become resentful, and I think part of that weakened the Klan and contributed to its rapid decline late in the 1920s. But the PR firm was absolutely state of the art. They uh, recruited a bunch of traveling lecturers, sent them around the country. You need to remember that this is a time when not very many people had radios, when films were brand new and were still mostly silent. So going to lectures was a major form of recreation for a lot of people, plus print media. The Klan ran 150 publications and two radio stations putting out this just constant, it's not only a a bigoted harangue, but what makes it most influential, I think, is that it attempts to create fear. The charge was, quite literally, that the Catholics, controlled by the Pope, and the Jews, allegedly controlled by a cabal of financiers, that these groups were planning to conduct a coup to take over the American government. There were a series of claims like that the Klan made, which I think to many of us today uh, would seem laughable if it were not for the fact that we are living in another period in which it seems possible to convince people of completely outrageous false claims.
0: Linda Gordon, her terrific new book is called The Second Coming of the KKK, The Ku Klux Klan of the 1920s in the American Political Tradition. Thank you, Linda. It's been great having you on the show.
1: Thank you, John. Thank you for having me.
0: One final thing. You can read about Linda Gordon's The Second Coming of the KKK in the new issue of The Nation, where it's reviewed by historian Kevin Cruz. He says the book captures how white supremacy has long been part of our political mainstream. (sighs) It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at TrumpWatchPodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about the deep history of the radical rights stealth plan for America. For that, we turn to Nancy McLean. She's an award-winning historian and the William H. Chafe Professor of History and Public Policy at Duke University. She's the author of an important new book. It's titled Democracy in Chains. We reached her today at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Nancy McLean, welcome to the program.
2: Hi, John. It's great to be with you.
0: In the 1970s, Liberals controlled the House by big margins. They controlled the Senate by massive margins. They had a majority of the Supreme Court. Now the Republicans not only control all three branches of the federal government, mm-hmm. but two thirds of the state governments. Uh, and these are the Republicans, special kind of Republican, the new kind of Republican who mm-hmm. believe that government is the problem and that the tax cuts are the answers. How did this change come about? Of course, we blame, we give credit, we give the blame to the Koch brothers for funding and organizing the funding of the, this new kind of Republican candidate, a campaign that's had, you know, frightening success at achieving their long-term goals. I always thought that Koch brothers' strategy came from, I wasn't sure where, maybe the Heritage Foundation, maybe they thought it up themselves. You in Democracy and Chains point out that Charles Koch had been supporting right-wing candidates since the 60s and had been a political failure for decades. He didn't really have a good idea about how to win, that money, even hundreds of millions of dollars, wasn't doing it. So he spent decades looking for ideas that would help him break through. He supported hundreds of scholars and intellectuals hoping they would help. And you have discovered the intellectual basis for the Koch brothers' political success. Tell us what you found.
2: Well, yes, I found this uh, trail. And I have to say, I, I think I only was able to find it circuitously by going from the mid-1950s up. I, I don't think almost anybody could have found it from the present going back because we would not have known what to look for. Um, most people on the left and you know, liberals and moderate Americans have never heard of a man named James McGill Buchanan who supplied the ideas that made Koch's money effective. And I only uh, happened on him. I didn't know about him when I started uh, a research project that became this book, and I got intrigued by what he was doing in the 1950s in Virginia and followed that story, and it led me ultimately to Coke. But yes, absolutely. As you said in your introduction, what's really stunning is that libertarianism uh, for many years, uh, for half a century, was a very marginal uh, proposition. You know, it was on the fringes of American politics even today, you know, less than. of American voters identify as libertarian, so it's an absolutely minority current in our politics. But what we've seen in recent years is that Charles Koch, has been very patient and you know he 's someone who um, is one of the richest men in the world. Um, he runs a huge privately held corporation and he 's an extremely strategic person who plays the long game and has infinite patience and he as you said he funded hundreds and hundreds of scholars by his own admission looking for what he called the technology that would let him break through that would enable these inherently minority ideas to actually achieve a transformation, and I should say, Koch is really a messianic. He's not only, I think, a brilliant and strategic figure, but he's also a messianic figure. He's compared himself to Martin Luther of the Protestant Reformation, and he said when he gave a huge uh, contribution to James uh, Buchanan Center at. George Mason University in 1997 at the start of all this, he said that he wanted, and I quote, to unleash the kind of force that propelled Columbus to his discovery.
0: Wow. So
2: this is someone who really has, a, a me- again, a messianic sense of yeah. his own world historic mission, and it is ironically and tragically, precisely because we have allowed inequality to develop in our society to the point that someone like him literally has hundreds of millions of dollars of spare change, you know, to, to put around and to invest in a kind of venture capital way to see uh, what will work, that now we are faced with a project to shackle our democracy by stealth means. And a lot of your listeners, I'm sure, will draw breath and say, oh, my gosh, that's an exaggeration. How can she say such a thing? Uh, And I have to say that I myself was often shocked when I was doing my research and just literally like physically sickened when I started to understand these ideas and I started to understand the scale of this apparatus that Koch had built up to put these ideas into effect, essentially behind the backs of the American people. So it's really a chilling story.
0: So James McGill Buchanan, I have to say, Mm -hmm. I had never heard of this guy, even though it turns out he did win the Nobel Prize for Economics. He's the source of the ideas, the strategies that Charles Koch put into practice. Who is, who was James McGill Buchanan? What was his work about?
2: He was born in Tennessee in 1919, was the only, in fact, Southerner uh, to win the Nobel Prize at the time that he won it. He worked in Southern institutions most of his life, and he came through the University of Chicago, where he worked with Frank Knight and Milton Friedman and other people who were part of what the Mount Pelerine Society project that some of your listeners may have heard about, but basically this kind of ultra free market, kind of fundamentalist, some would call it neoliberal transnational grouping that began in 1947. And so Buchanan was very much part of that milieu. But what he did that was distinctive from others is that he used that economic toolkit to analyze politics. And he developed an approach uh, that is called public choice in its broadest catchment. And there are some liberals who, who, you know, work in the public choice tradition, I should say. But his specific variant came to be called Virginia political economy. And he said at the outset that that when he set to work in mid-century, um, you you know, it was the time that Keynesian economics were dominant, you know, labor unions were very much accepted, all kinds of collective behavior was widely accepted and understood as legitimate because people believed that you needed countervailing power to the massive corporations that had developed in American society. Well, Buchanan did not see things like that. He was a libertarian individualist. He disdained of collective power. He did not believe that anybody thought about the common good or the collective good. So he actually said that his mission was an this was his verb, to tear down the idea of public interest that that prevailed uh, in the late 1950s. And what he did to do that was to, uh, as economists would say, model political actors as the Chicago School did market actors. So to say that no matter what anybody said, they were actually seeking their own self-interest. So an elected official who told you that they were, say, supporting unions for the common interest and working for a clean environment because that was what the people wanted and that was good for them, Buchanan would say, no, 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 that person, that politician's actually doing that because he can get the votes of those constituencies. And by his analysis, politicians were buying votes with other people's money. And he came to view the entire enterprise as illegitimate and to say that we needed a constitutional revolution to stop it. But Charles Koch picked up these ideas and is actually pushing not only for radical changes, applying uh, Buchanan's ideas, but uh, in, in policies um, to undermine unions, to privatize Social Security and Medicare, to suppress votes, to gerrymander on a massive scale, all of those kinds of things. But ultimately, what those, those, uh, those policy changes are enabling is a radical change in our fundamental national rule book, and that is the Constitution. So this Koch donor network and its allied politicians, who, as you pointed out, now control so many states, what they are pushing for is a constitutional convention Uh, in in which they would be able to push through their, what they call, liberty amendments. And those liberty amendments would hamstring uh, government and shackle democracy like nothing we have ever seen before in this country. It is really a chilling prospect, and by some counts, they have 28 of the 34 states they need to succeed.
0: Wow. Well, you call you say this is was known as Virginia political economy in the South is a fascinating key to this whole story. Uh, you know, we think of the right wing of the Republican Party, the Goldwater movement comes from Arizona, the Reagan movement comes from southern california. we've I've always thought it was a sunbelt phenomenon, but you show that the South has been the key historically to the rise of the right, and that this libertarian movement actually is deeply connected to the opposition to the civil rights movement. Let's you, let's use the word racism here, which isn't necessarily part of libertarian ideology, but because of the way the civil rights movement enlisted the federal government in, mm-hmm. in achieving civil rights, we had a blending of southern white voters and libertarian uh, uh, theory uh, and Today, we have Southern domination of our politics to a surprising extent.
2: You summarized it beautifully, and yes, that's how I found James uh, um, McGill uh, Buchanan was by accident looking into the story of how Virginia led the South in massive resistance to Brown versus Board of Education, and uh, adopted school vouchers to enable um, the selling or the you know shifting of tax revenues to segregated white private schools, private academies, and Buchanan I found was playing a role in that as was Milton Friedman. That's another story, but just as you summarized, what was interesting to me is that they did not speak explicitly in terms of race, and they claimed to disdain racial prejudice and disdain state-sponsored segregation, although they'd done nothing to fight it and did nothing to, to condemn it that I was ever able to find. Um, but, but they said they also opposed what they call it forced integration, which was also a segregationist term, I should say. Yeah. But, but what I believe, I mean, I don't think that they, that these economists were obsessed by race in the way that so many white Virginians who were saying we should shut down public education and fund private schools and you know goddamn it we're not going to obey the federal court telling us to put black and white children together. But what what the economists did that I think is almost more chilling is they saw this as an opportunity for their cause. These these ideas that they had of privatizing all kinds of things, right? And of breaking down the power of collectives. Those ideas were totally marginal in the the late 50s. And so these kind of right-wing uh, libertarian economists saw in the Southern schools crisis an opportunity to move their cause forward. And they saw also, I think, a mass base for that cause. And it was exactly that mass base that Barry Goldwater tapped in 1964 yes. when he ran for president, having opposed the Civil Rights Act, which all libertarians I've ever come across uh did. Um, and he also opposed the Brown decision. And people may not remember it, but, but Barry Goldwater was the first, you could say, neoliberal candidate. He, it, it, you know, the way that term is, is used, he supported privatizing Social Security. He wanted a flat tax instead of graduated progressive income taxes. And he also called for selling off the Tennessee Valley Authority, which had brought <laughs> rural electrification to so many uh, Southerners um, who were not wealthy. So it it was really extraordinary. The only states that Goldwater won, besides its home state of Arizona, were the states of the Deep South that practiced extreme voter suppression. So it's almost like anticipating what we're starting to see now, that this cause, this Koch-led cause, cannot win if the public understands what it's doing and what it's seeking. But they can throw smoke in people's eyes by throwing out anodyne phrases like limited government, you know, keeping more of your tax dollars in your pocket. You know, all of this stuff that sounds nice. But meanwhile, they're pushing for things that nobody wants, like privatizing Social Security and Medicare, like pushing through that god awful health care bill that most Republicans didn't want. You know, so all of these things uh, they're doing, but they also understand that to do it, they need to suppress the vote. Hence, they have encouraged this, what they know to be a lie from, you know, systematic research. There is no Significant voter fraud in America, and yet they're suppressing the votes of up to 6 million Americans by some counts, and these extreme gerrymanders that, just as in the 1950s, overrepresent rural conservative interests and underrepresent urban and suburban interests. And it's very interesting. In fact, the massive resistance legislation that Virginia passed in 1956 would not have passed if they did not have gerrymandering that overrepresented rural conservative uh-huh. districts. So it's almost like we're just going back to that that time. And in fact, I think that is the model of liberty that this Koch donor network really wants is what you saw in Virginia at mid-century, minus the segregation.
0: Let's talk about Trump. Trump is not a libertarian, at least he certainly did not run as a libertarian. And that's the reason that Koch brothers did not support Trump for president. Trump was Against free trade. He promised a national health care program that he said would be terrific. He said he would protect Social Security and Medicare. In fact, he called the Republicans during the, those Republican debates during the primaries, he called the Republicans who the Koch brothers supported as puppets. Trump was yeah. not a libertarian right winger. Uh, the mm-hmm. Koch brothers did not support him for president. Where do we stand right now between the, how are the Koch brothers getting along with yeah. Trump right now?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really uh, important point that you make. And I think it's also important for listeners to, to remember to take themselves back to the primaries. And as you say, Trump was the only one of the Republican uh, front runners who was not carrying the Koch agenda. And again, James McGill Buchanan taught, uh, don't focus on who rules, focus on the rules. Mm. And if you focus on personalities, you'll never get anywhere. If you focus on fundamentally changing the rules to restrain uh, political actors, as he advocated, in my words, to shackle them because he always called for enchaining the Leviathan in, in his term. Um, if you focus on those, you will get somewhere. And so the interesting thing is, all those Republican frontrunners had, you know, hook, line, and sinker were accepting the Koch uh, donor network's agenda. Trump seemed not to be, as you say. Um, and I think that made him, I mean, certainly there was a lot of racism, a lot of bigotry of all kinds, and, and you know, whatever that play, played into Trump's support. But apart Part of it, I think, is that a lot of Republican voters, almost at a kind of intuitive level, knew that their party was getting hijacked, and they, you know, and I think that's kind of what happened when they say he speaks for himself; he has his own money; he doesn't have to answer to others. Now, that may have led some people who might not otherwise uh, vote for him to have voted for him. But now, since he's in office, he has he's surrounded. By Coke people. So how that happened, we don't know. But by one researcher's count, 70% of Trump's uh, senior appointees are from the Coke donor network. Wow. In- Virtually all of the people who are in key places come from that donor network. So Mike Pence, the vice president, you know, I would urge the left to say, slow down on impeachment because we get Mike Pence then, and he would actually be a lot more competent in pushing through this agenda. And Mike Pence is 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 one person who's there. Mick Mulvaney, his budget director, crucial important position. Mick Mulvaney comes out of this network. Mark Short, who is uh, the White House liaison to Congress to get the agenda through, well, lo and behold, he comes from five years at the head of Freedom Partners. which is a Koch donor uh, operation, Um, Scott Pruitt in the EPA, uh, now the head of the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, Naomi Rao, I mean, you could just go through the list at every key place. There are people who are associated with this radical right donor network um, who are calling the shots and who are doing radical policy changes. So while we're all focused on Trump's latest tweets, these people are pushing through this agenda. I really believe that this is like the classic con man. You know, he stretches an arm out here, you know, and catches your attention with something. And meanwhile, you know, the other out of your view, all these other things are happening. We're seeing this in the EPA. We're seeing it in the Labor Department. We're seeing it in the courts. We're seeing it all these places The Trump, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the Coke donor network agenda is going through.
0: Nancy McLean, her important new book on the deep history of the radical right is called Democracy in Chains. It's out now from Viking. Nancy, thanks for talking with us today.
2: Thank you so much, John. It was good to be with you.
0: One postscript, Nancy McLean's Democracy in Chains, was named the most valuable book of 2017 by John Nichols on his progressive honor roll for The Nation magazine. That's it for today's Trump Watch. Today's show was recorded by Lyra Smith at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood. Our producer is Renee Reynolds. Our senior producer is Alan Minsky. Special thanks to Ray Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. I'm John Weiner. The Trump Watch podcast returns next week with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting.